Please welcome your host, Miriam. Thank you very much. Welcome to this very special edition of the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast live at the Bradford Literary Festival. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners and for this very special episode, our live audience, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean, and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by a feminist icon, a fiercely unapologetic trailblazer, a woman who has never minced her words She's an award-winning columnist and international public speaker on Arab and Muslim issues and global feminism. Based in Cairo and New York, she is the one and only Mona El Tahawi. <laughs> Mona. Thank you so much for being here. Um, your first book, Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution, was released in April 2015. And since then, there was a revolution, but perhaps not the one you referred to. Tell us a bit about how much has changed for feminists on the ground in Egypt today. Well, first of all, thank you very much for your kind introduction, Miriam. I really appreciate your lovely words. Um, so I, I actually think there has been, or started at least, a sexual revolution in, you know, the title of my book is The Middle East and North Africa, and increasingly we're now using the phrase Southwest Asia just to decolonize the phrases that we use. So I'll use Middle East and Southwest Asia alternatively, or, or I'll alternate them just so that we can be on the same page. So I wrote that book because I wanted to ask what happens when what we usually refer to as the political revolution, i.e. the revolution against the state, what happens when that revolution goes home? Because as you all know, in 2010, Tunisia began a revolution that had a massive impact across the region. And that revolution came to Egypt, my country of birth. And we managed to overthrow Hosni Mubarak, who was our dictator for 30 years. And other countries in the region also had revolutions that have fared quite differently. And I hate it when people say the revolutions in any of those countries have failed because I don't consider a revolution to be this one-time event that we then, you know, give like, okay, in two hours you've got to fix everything that, you know, centuries of fuckery um, has ruined. And that's not how revolutions work. So the revolutions have fared differently. And in, in my, I wanted to look at what happened, as I said, when the revolution goes home. And I wanted to emphasize that there isn't just one revolution that we need, which is against the state, against the dictator in the presidential palace. We need a revolution against the dictator on the street corner and against the dictator in the home. And if anything, the hardest revolution is against the dictator in the home because all dictators go home. So that's what I look at in my book. I went to Tunisia, I went to Jordan, I spoke to Libyan activists. I'm Egyptian, obviously, I looked at Syria. You know, I looked at, at the, Yemen, I looked at the countries that all had uprisings and revolutions of various forms. But what was missing clearly was that gender aspect. 
Because when I spoke about feminism, a lot of men, including revolutionaries, would say to me, ah, Mona, it's not the time, you know. We've got to fix this, we've got to fix that. As if women were some kind of niche special interest and not, you know, half of the fucking society. I don't know your policy on swearing, but I swear a lot, Miriam. I will put out a warning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very profane woman, happily so. So I, I wanted to remind them that, yes, if the state oppresses everyone, the state, along with the street, along with the home, together oppress women. And I'm not interested in a revolution that just gives men a portion of the power that the state has, and then men are happy, and then fuck the rest of us. So that's what my first book was about. And since I wrote that book, the gender aspect has come out to the fore. Because as increasingly our revolutions are called failures, we have to ask why. And even though I, I, I don't agree that the revolutions have failed, they have stumbled, I believe, because the gender aspect is missing. Because you cannot be free if half of society is not free. Because you cannot be free of the presidential dictator if you still have a dictator on the street corner and at home. And so I said, we need a sexual revolution. And indeed, we have begun a sexual revolution. Because if you go online now, in a similar way to young people in the run-up to what is called the Arab Spring, even though I don't like that phrase, but for, for the sake of brevity. In the run-up to the, to the Arab Spring, young people across the region were going online and using social media to say, I count, as a way of preparing for that revolution in the street. Now, because we've banned protests in Egypt and other countries, young people, mostly feminists and queer people, are going online to say, I deserve to be free of the dictator at home, on, and on, excuse me, on, on the street corner. And that is the sexual revolution. I'm seeing unprecedented challenges to patriarchy in the home, um, conversations about sex, about masturbation, about orgasm, about being queer, about being free, about bodily autonomy, and that is the sexual revolution, and it has begun. Why do you think female sexual pleasure is so taboo? And I don't just mean in Egypt, of course, or the Middle East. Of course. I mean, my second book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, takes my fight against patriarchy globally, and I show clearly that, obviously, it's not just my region of birth that, that has patriarchy. It's not, you know, we don't own the copyright to patriarchy. But the very quick answer to your question is what happened in the United States last week? The Supreme Court of the most powerful country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, reversed Roe v. Wade, which was the federal protection for abortion, by way of saying that they demand the right to control female pleasure. Because abortion bans are about pleasure. Abortion bans are about controlling our bodies, are about denying us bodily autonomy, and are specifically about women's right to sexual pleasure, the ownership of our pleasure and desire, and the ways that we control the consequences of our pleasure and desire. I, I have had two abortions, and I speak about this very openly. One so-called illegal or one so-called legal, and I say so-called because I reject the power of the state, including the Supreme Court. Fuck the Supreme Court. I reject their power in telling me what I can and can't do with my uterus. But I speak now, finally, openly about my abortions because our abortion stories are a way of fighting back against abortion bans. I speak very openly about desire and pleasure and my determination to fight shame and to release myself from guilt and sexual shame because I believe that those are the most potent individual weapons that we have against a Supreme Court that is filled with Christian zealots who are determined to control our sexual pleasure. If I fought zealots in the Middle East, both Muslims and Christians, 
I sure as fuck will fight zealots in the United States of America who are white supremacist and Christian and who are, as I said, in, uh, I often say, they are emboldening theocrats and zealots across the entire world by what they've done last week. Well, that, that's actually one of the points I wanted to raise with you about... So I, I read in your newsletter, uh, The Feminist Giant, you wrote recently, what the US media is incapable of doing is saying clearly that this is a white supremacist Christian movement driven by white supremacist Christian zealots who are patriarchal to the core. Is the social critique that we're seeing of this rollback of women's rights missing a crucial unpicking of white supremacy? Why, why is it that that seems to be one of the unspoken elements of this equation? The very simple answer is because US media is mostly white and they're utterly incapable, either by denial or because they themselves are white supremacist, of calling white supremacy white supremacy. In the same way that when Donald Trump was elected, so much of the US media refused to actually say what it was, which was white supremacists who are racist fucks elected a white supremacist racist fuck. I'm, and I, again, I'm very deliberate. I'm a writer. I use my words very deliberately. And I know what I'm doing when I say white supremacist racist fucks. Because for the longest time, you know, I moved to the US in 2000. And I saw how easily and how readily the US media was able to call the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, in my country of birth, Egypt, you know, zealots how easily they were able to use the, the phrase political Islam. I use the phrase political Islam. Fuck the Muslim Brotherhood. I don't care about the Muslim Brotherhood. I don't care about zealots of any religion, you know? So I, and I've actually done it in Feminist Giant, where I've put side by side an interview by a US magazine with a woman from the Muslim Brotherhood, a very senior woman from the Muslim Brotherhood, in which they so easily use words like patriarchy, and she's letting women down, and she's a traitor to feminism. And I'm like, yes. She is a traitor to feminism. She is letting other women down. She is absolutely a foot soldier, as I call them, of patriarchy. Now, let's look at what US media, for example, the Washington Post, does when they report on these white women who have been instrumental in destroying Roe v. Wade, including... So, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court because they had a case in front of them called Dobbs versus something or other. This was a case that was brought to the Supreme Court by the Attorney General of Mississippi a white Christian zealot, a woman. Hmm? And when that woman was profiled by the Washington Post, not once did they use the word patriarchy. Not once did they say she's letting women down. Not once did they say she's anti-feminist. Not once did they call her Christianity political Christianity. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Are, are we living in alternate planets here, you know? So as someone who has reported on the zealots in my part of the world, I, I am now living in the United States. And I am determined to use the same language against the zealots that are destroying not just women's rights, but trans rights, queer rights, black rights, disabled rights, the rights of anyone who is not an able-bodied, wealthy, Christian, cisgender, heterosexual man. I am determined to use against them the kind of language that they have so readily used against my people. And it's so interesting that you make that point because, of course, one of the facets of whiteness, of course, is that it's completely unspoken and in many ways can't be spoken, can't be named, can't be called out um, because of its so-called invisibility to those who are partaking in it without an uncritical perspective. And I, I wanted to talk about um, a point that a filmmaker called Sivia Tamarkin had made 
uh, about this very specific issue and the rolling back of, of abortion rights. She said, the rollback on abortion to the white nationalist fear of replacement, that's what she links it to. She says, replacement theory, for those who are not familiar with it, has recently made a huge public resurgence in the right-wing media. And of course, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's the theory that Western elites are somehow conspiring to bring non-white peoples into the US to replace white voters in order to achieve their goals, namely you know, the extinction of the very much constructed notion of the white race. Um, she states that the anti-abortion movement, at least in part, is very much about maintaining white supremacy in a time of dwindling white population. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, census after census in the United States shows us that the white birth rate is declining and that specifically the Latinx, or sometimes referred to as the Hispanic birth rate, is the fastest growing in the United States. So by the year, I think, 2040, definitely by 2050, White people in the United States are going to be among one of many, many minority groups. And that is definitely a driving factor in the abortion bans and in the growing power of white supremacists, whether it's politically or socially or in the kind of violence that we see. But I, but I also want to, so while I agree with the filmmaker you're quoting, I want to also touch on, on the point that you said about whiteness and invisibility. And another of the points that I bring up again and again is that in the United States, and I'm sure it's the same here in, in the UK, whiteness and Christianity specifically are considered default. So white Christians are considered the default and the norm, and the rest of us are somehow the, the deviants from that, or, or, or we're the other, we're the opposite of that. And so, and this goes back to the point about the US media again, and why they're incapable of saying that, and, and why when we've known for the past 50 years in the United States, because this is how long the Christian conservatives have, have worked to get to this point of reversing Roe v. Wade. They have literally worked for 50 years because Roe v. Wade was, um, was accepted as, as law by the, the Supreme Court in 1971. So it, it's almost 50 years. So we've known that they've been doing this for 50 years. And not only have they been doing this politically by running for office in the most mundane and tiniest of elections, but they've also been doing it using violence. A violence that, again, when my people, quote, unquote, you know, I'm of Muslim descent, Egyptian, all of that, you know, when, when, when we, and I'm, I'm very, very hesitantly use us and them, but in this case, I have to. When we are violent in, in any shape or form, we are terrorists, a word I never use. But I never or rarely, rarely see the Christian zealots who have blown up abortion clinics, who have killed abortion providers, including women, being referred to as terrorists. And one of the things that I learned in researching and writing my essays for Feminist Giant about the white women who have destroyed Roe v. Wade is that they have got away with it because they are white and Christian and women. And one of the, one of the academics who studied this anti-abortion movement, uh, a woman, an academic whose name I can't remember right now, but if you go to Feminist Giant in my essay, The White Women Who Destroyed Roe v. Wade, she makes it very clear that people often think that this is men, you know, like, if you don't have a uterus, stay out of my business. I won't let men do whatever. The anti-abortion movement in the United States is mostly white women, is by and large white women, which I think people find shocking. And the same academic also says that through her research, she's found that law enforcement struggled to track down these women who were violent, who were blowing up abortion clinics, who were attempting to kill abortion providers because they saw these nice Christian ladies. And in their mind, a nice white Christian lady is not a terrorist or a criminal, you know? And this is where we have to challenge this notion that whiteness and Christianity are the norm and the default, and therefore not dangerous. 
And this is exactly why I say it openly, you know, white Christian zealots, including the women. And that's why US, US media refuses to, because they're mostly white and Christian. Such an interesting point, because I was reading that the six Supreme judges who'd been involved um, were all Catholics. Um, and I, and you know, I mean, complete respect to, to any Catholic, but of course I think if the six Supreme judges had been Muslims, <laughs> um, <laughs> we might have heard about their religious persuasion, um, and perhaps we might have taken that into consideration in terms of the judgments that they were making about that particular discussion. Well, you know, I wrote an essay called If Amy Coney Barrett Was a Muslim, but interestingly enough, one of the groups that is um, fighting the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade is Muslim civil rights groups, because according to several Muslim Islamic interpretations, abortion is not a sin. Now, I don't want to fight over abortion over religion. I, I don't give a flying fuck about the religion of anyone on the Supreme Court. I want religion out of my uterus and religion out of politics, you know? But if, if we're going to go there, like Muslims don't, not all Muslims think abortion is haram or a sin. So I'm, I'm not going to allow a Catholic to tell me what I can, can't do with my body if my religion of birth has told me I can't. Do you know what I mean? But I want this to be a completely secular fight. But your, your point stands, definitely. Well, so that takes me on to, I guess, the question of white feminism, which I think has become a very um, sort of fiery point of discussion amongst feminists. What is white feminism? Who are white feminists? What is you know, the opposite of white feminism. But I wanted to ask you your thoughts on this. I mean, do you find the term to be helpful? What does it mean to you? Um, and what would be the opposite of it? So I think the, the really kind of quick way of explaining white feminism is, is to say that it's a kind of feminism that benefits a very few white women. So it's not even like the, the feminism for all white women. Because if you're looking at who is your kind of typical white feminist, again, it is an able-bodied, privileged, cisgender, heterosexual white woman, you know? And the reason that white feminism, this phrase came about is because that kind of feminist really has the privilege, and I use the, I underline that word, the privilege of mostly only fighting misogyny. And the rest of us can't afford to fight just misogyny. So if you're looking at a black woman, she's also fighting racism. If you're looking at a disabled woman, she's also fighting ableism. If you're looking, you know, all the isms that the rest of us are fighting, we can't afford to just fight misogyny. And so, Terms like intersectionality, which have been around even before the actual coining of the phrase, you know. But if you look at uh, black feminists such as Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, and then all the way through to Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who's the law professor who, who came up with the actual phrase, you know, intersectional feminism or intersectionality, the point that they're trying to make is that we, that for the majority of us who identify as feminists, we cannot afford to focus just on misogyny. So the opposite, and one, one way that I try to, to kind of expand that idea of a feminist who is very individualistic in her approach to feminism is to remind people that feminism for me is not about these um, exceptional women who have managed to, to kind of jump over the obstacles that patriarchy puts in their way and say, yay, post-feminist heaven. Feminism for me is destroying the obstacles that get in the way of everyone else. And, and that's where intersectionality comes in. And that's where, when I talk about patriarchy being an octopus, I want people to imagine the head of the octopus is patriarchy, and each one of the tentacles is the form of isms that stands in the way, like white supremacy, capitalism, misogyny, definitely, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, ableism. And so I, I came up with the phrase bespoke feminism to, to kind of address that very individualistic kind of exceptional approach to feminism where 
much like when you go to the tailor or the seamstress or whoever makes your clothes, if you're lucky enough, but someone can make your clothes for you individually, they take your individual measurements and create an item of clothing that fits just, just you. So that's kind of like white feminism, but I call it bespoke feminism. And the reason that I came up with the phrase bespoke feminism is I think there is pushback in countries that are not white majority countries, in that there are women there who belong to those privileged elite classes who are not white, who very easily brush aside white feminism and what it represents, which is this very elite, exceptional, individualist kind of feminism, and say, I'm not white, you know? So when you look at, like, say, Hindu feminists who belong to the, to the upper caste, yeah? They can very easily say, I'm not white, this doesn't apply to me. But if you, if you apply to them bespoke feminism, you will see that that does apply to them, because they don't take into account Dalit women, you know, of, of lower caste. They don't take into account Muslim women who, you know, especially under Modi and, and Hindu supremacy right now, um, cannot afford to look just at misogyny. Do you know what I mean? So there are, very, there, there are various ways of challenging the phrase white feminism. I use bespoke feminism. Some women, um, you know, some use intersectional feminism. There's a great book by a black feminist called Mickey Kendall, who, and I know it's on sale at Waterstones, called, called um, Hood Feminism, where she takes, you know, working class black feminism and says that you have to, if you want to be not just an ally, an accomplice, because she doesn't think allyship is enough. She wants it to be an accomplice in dismantling patriarchy. It has to be about more than just misogyny. And do you think um, there's something with regards to where people take their cues in terms of the feminist movement, you know, who have been the leaders in terms of the public sphere, there have been the people who've been able to have the platforms, the book deals, the, you know, the, the public arenas, but, but in terms of sort of meaningful feminism, does it need to be a movement that's led by the least audible voices within the movement? Um, how do, yes, how do, you, how do you sort of find the references that maybe for people who are racialized as white but want to be feminist but want to avoid the pitfalls of, of white feminism, where, where, where should they be looking? Where should we be looking? Well, look, the older I get, the more of an anarchist I become. So I don't believe in this concept of leadership to begin with. So I, I, I don't want hierarchies of any kind. I want to destroy all kinds of hierarchies. But I also, went, I also want to acknowledge all those pitfalls that you're talking about. And I want feminism to be led by the non-white, the non-rich, the non-famous, and the queer. And I, I use all of those phrases specifically because those, those are the groups that have, so far, been kept out of all of those things that you're talking about. The limelight, the book deals, the platforms, you know. When I look at the United States now, and, and, I, and, and I said this when Donald Trump was elected, and I, I say it again now, that Roe v. Wade has been overturned and all the, all the other horrendous things that, that, is, that are happening um, in the aftermath of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, I consider it an absolute and abject failure of US feminism. Feminism has failed in the United States and we have to acknowledge that for many, many reasons. But uh, a large part of that reason is because of all those people that you mentioned, you know, the most privileged had the biggest platforms, had the, the, the biggest book deals, had the biggest microphones, and they were the least hurt. This is why increasingly I become a feminist, because they were the least hurt. You know, and, and this phrase, for example, reproductive rights, that was, a, that was the cornerstone of so much of US feminism, has to be retired now and replaced by something that is much more of a revolutionary statement and, and, and way of being, which is reproductive justice, which is a phrase that was coined in 1994 by black feminists who wanted to recognize all of those tentacles of the opticus, or opticus, octopus, as I said, you know, and what 
reproductive justice does is that phrase that I said about how I'm not interested in the women who jump over the obstacle. I'm interested in the obstacles and destroying them to get them out of the way. Because what reproductive justice does is it looks at all of those tentacles of the octopus and chops them off one by one. Because it says, we believe in bodily autonomy for everyone. We believe people who want to have children should have the right to have children. Those who don't want children, myself for example, I'm child free by choice, should not have to have children. And therefore, you know, there's abortion now, right? Abortion rights, uh, contraception, access to contraception. But also, they also believe that people uh, should have the right through justice to create the families they want with co the communal support that they deserve. And then that's when we start talking about chopping off all the tentacles of the octopus, because that's when we address white supremacy for black families. That's when we address capitalism for working class families. That's when we address access to all kinds of spaces for disabled families. Do you know what I mean? So this is where American feminism, and I shouldn't even use the word American, because in other parts of the Americas, they have succeeded where US feminism has failed. So this is where specifically US feminism has failed, because they've kept talking about reproductive rights, rights, rights. It's about justice. Because while they kept talking about reproductive rights, the people least affected, and, and Roe v. Wade died, actually, for many people in the United States long before the Supreme Court kind of stabbed it finally. For so many working class women in the South, Roe v. Wade had died. Like there was so, the, the state of Texas, for example, had dwindled from 40 abortion clinics to five. Mississippi, even before this case that went ahead to the Supreme Court, had one abortion clinic. So if you're a working class woman, you had to take time off work, you had to find transportation, you had to pay for a hotel. Where was Roe v. Wade for you? If you were a black woman, Roe v. woman, Roe v. Wade had died for you a long time ago. If you were a trans man or a non-binary person or a gender expansive person, the medical establishment doesn't even recognize you as a person who could become pregnant and therefore need an abortion, you know? So Roe v. Wade has essentially come around now and made a very specific class of white women very upset and angry in the same way that the very specific class of white women were very upset and angry when Trump was elected. Whereas many of us were upset and angry way before Trump was elected because the first thing he said was, Mexicans are rapists and murderers. I'm going to ban Muslims. He made fun of disabled people, you know? So for those of us who can't afford to focus just on misogyny, who saw the whole octopus, we've been enraged about Roe v. Wade and the dangers that the, the, the death of Roe v. Wade represent for a very long time because we saw reproductive justice. So we have to recognize what that octopus does, and we have to recognize the, the most impacted by it, and I want the most impacted by it to lead feminism. And how do you um, balance within the feminist movement the fact that, obviously, to me, it feels like part of whiteness is the centering of European or Western experiences. And, and America is one example of that. And so, you know, the, the rightful uproar that we have over Roe v. Wade being overturned, but, you know, Irish uh, uh, people who've been campaigning for abortion rights kind of have never really received any similar level of support. There are uh, Uyghur women, of course, in China being, being sterilized. There are other uh, women in similar and sometimes arguably even more damning situations how does the feminist movement balance these sort of competing needs, you know? The United States is not the center of the universe, but unfortunately acts like it's the center of the universe, and the rest of the world gives it that space. And unfortunately, it does have a massive amount of, of influence, uh, you know, across the world. That's why I said I'm really worried about the ways that it's going to embolden theocrats and zealots because of what happened to Roe v. Wade. But you're absolutely right, and I think that it's not just the United States, we also have to hold accountable 
specifically white people again, you know, because you know when Black Lives Matter, the, 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 this incredible revolution, the Black Lives Matter revolution, um, that Black Lives Matter started several years ago, of course, by the three queer black women who started it after the Trayvon Martin um, case. But I'm talking about the revolution that began, you know, in, at the height of lockdown during um, the, the early days of the pandemic after um, George Floyd was murdered and Breonna Taylor, you know, and so many other black people. There were many, black, um, many white people here in the UK, you know, like Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, but you had, you know, Gary Young wrote a, an incredible essay reminding white people in the UK that the very things that you're supporting in the US, you know, um, when, when you're saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm anti-blackness and, and systemic um, white supremacy and all of that, what about here in the UK? What about in other European countries? So there is this denial and hypocrisy and myopia that I think that a lot of white people in the UK and across Europe have, where they will, from one side of their mouth, condemn what's happening in the United States. And, and like you said, in, in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, the very same thing is happening. Well, what about you know, supporting the rights of pregnant people in Northern Ireland um, to abortion and reproductive justice, you know? And also speaking out against what China is doing um, against Muslim women, um, as you said. So I think that we need to decenter the United States for its own good. The United States needs to start paying attention to other parts of the world, and that's why I was talking about the Americas. Because over the past couple of years, as the United States has been going towards this white supremacist Christian zealotry that now we've seen, you know, finally, you know, like um, stab Roe v. Wade to death, we've seen in Mexico, we've seen in Argentina, and we've seen in other countries across the Americas, South and Central America, the de decriminalization of abortion by feminist and queer alliances in the same way that feminist and queer alliances in, in Poland have been fighting against the almost total abortion ban there, so far unsuccessfully. But when you see what they've done in Argentina, the largest Latin American country to de decriminalize abortion, it's been incredible. When you see anarchist feminists in Mexico literally fighting the police and, and making the police cower you know, using violence, using vandalism. We, we have the right to use violence and vandalism against a state and against the violence that that state uses against us. So whether it's for self-defense or just violence for the sake of what I believe is a legitimate feminist revolution, we have the right to use all of that. And the Mexican feminists have been doing that in a way that white American feminists cannot even counter, you know? They wouldn't even say, fuck Donald Trump. You know, this, this notion of civility and unity, I'm like, fuck civility and fuck unity. I, will, I refuse to be civil to someone who doesn't recognize my full humanity, you know? In the same way that my full humanity now and the full humanity of people who can become pregnant has been jeopardized by what the Supreme Court has done, you know? And now, Secret Service agents are going to homes of people who go on social media in the United States and say, burn the fucking thing down. Go and burn the Supreme Court down. Burn the Supreme Court down. Fuck the Supreme Court. You know, I could get arrested for saying that. So, so we need, the United States needs to, needs to be decentered. It needs to take lessons from countries across the Americas. And, and this is again why I say that we need the non-white, the non-rich, the non-famous, and the queer to be leading this. We need black feminists who for the longest time have been saying reproductive justice. Because when you ban abortion, you don't make it rare or eradicated. You just make it dangerous and often deadly for the poorest and the most vulnerable. I want to take a slight turn and talk to you about a feminist giant. Um, can we talk about Nawal al-Sadawi? Um, you, may God rest her soul, the fearless Egyptian feminist author whose obituary you wrote last year for The Guardian, uh, a very moving one, by the way. Um, and in your piece, you said about her ethos that if you had to summarize it, 
it would be what her protagonist in the novel Woman at Point Zero says when she's accused in court of being a savage and dangerous woman. She says, I speak the truth, and the truth is savage and dangerous. How does one become a savage and dangerous woman, Mona El-Tahawi, and why is that so crucial? Well, Miriam, I like to think I'm a savage and dangerous woman. I'm, I'm, I'm urging you to go and burn the fucking Supreme Court down. <laughs> I thought that might be a good link. <laughs> <laughs> or burn whatever the equivalent of the Supreme Court is here, you know? Any, any patriarchal um, representations. So one becomes a savage and dangerous woman when we refuse to be civil with patriarchy, when we refuse to be civil with misogynists, when we refuse to be civil with or, or soft or gentle or tiptoe around um, patriarchal violence, you know? The thing that I find astonishing is, and I, I was on a, an Australian TV show, the episode was banned, and it was, and, and this is why I find it astonishing, in that one of the reasons that the episode, this is in 2019, in an ostensible democracy called Australia, and the episode was banned for quite a number of reasons, mostly to do with me, I'm very proud to say, because I asked, how much longer must we wait for men and boys to stop beating and murdering us? How many rapists must we kill? And for daring to ask that question, how many rapists must we kill before men stop raping us? This is a legitimate question that I still have not received an answer to, you know? So they had this man in the audience. It was a, it was a, a current affairs program where members of the audience ask you a question. So this man had the fucking nerve to ask me, Mona, don't you think violence begets violence? And I'm like, well, genius, what do centuries of violence, patriarchal violence against us, beget, you know? This is where the savage and dangerous woman comes in, where you answer questions like that, and you ask a question like, how many rapists must we kill before men stop raping us, you know? And for asking that, this episode was banned. It was banned. I was accused of inciting violence. I, I haven't, well, I beat one man up in a club because he sexually assaulted me, and he deserved it. But, you know, I didn't say, I didn't say go out there and kill men. I asked a question, a hypothetical, and the daily actual reality of violence, patriarchal violence against us every day goes unchecked. But for daring to ask that question, I'm inciting violence and the episode is banned, you know? So this is how we're savage and dangerous, where we refuse to play nice, we refuse to be polite, we refuse to be civil with patriarchy and its oppressive systems that are the opposite, the complete opposite of civility and niceness with us. It reminds me um, what you're saying of Fanon's theory of violence, right? That it is the violence of the colonizers that the colonized replicate, that it is in speaking the language of violence that the colonized adopt and respond in the language they've been taught. And it's, you know, a very interesting way of conceptualizing violence that, you know, if that's consistently the way that women have you know, for the longest time been treated in forms of domination more or less overt, um, that, that it comes as a surprise that, you know, once in a blue moon, there's one woman who snaps and probably goes to prison for it, actually. Oh, and to much longer prison sentences. So here in the UK, much like in the US, um, the black and brown people, so the, the rates of incarceration affect mostly black and brown people. So disproportionate numbers of black and brown people in your prison systems here. And um, in the US, at least, I don't know about here in the UK, but the numbers of women being sent to prison is also you know, on, on a massive increase. And the number of black and brown women, again, the majority of incarcerated women in the US, they've been subjected to various forms of violence. So 
you're supposed to take this violence and not even respond. And when you dare to respond or defend yourself in any way, you're punished. And here in the, US, in the UK, I know because there was a famous case a year or two ago, if a husband kills his wife, he's sentenced to a much lesser prison term than if a wife kills her husband. And very rarely does a wife just snap and kill her husband out of the blue. It's often because she's been subjected to decades of violence by her husband. So the entire system is, you know, this, this is where um, the US feminist Judith Herman comes in. She wrote this incredible book called Trauma and Violence, which was really helpful to me when I was recovering after I was assaulted and um, sexually assaulted and had my arms broken by Egyptian riot police. Gloria Steinem, the, American, the US feminist, recommended this book to me. And in this book, Judith Herman says, the legal system was, was designed to protect men from the superior power of the state, but not to protect women and children from the superior power of men. And this is where I'm a savage and dangerous woman, because I'm like, fuck this shit. This system was not designed for me, and it was not designed to protect me. This system was designed by men to protect men, and, and the rest of us, basically, as far as this system is concerned, can go to hell. This is why women like Noelle Sadawi is called a savage and dangerous woman, and her protagonist, who is a sex worker who's about to be executed, she said those words because she recognizes that she has been judged and sentenced to death by men who represent that system who built that system to protect men, but never to protect women. And you mentioned what um, happened to you at the hands of the, the riot police, and uh, you know, like the great uh, Al-Sadawi, uh, you experienced patriarchal violence, both personally and structurally from the state apparatus. What is the relationship to your mind between state violence and patriarchy? And I know you touched on it early on, but I'd like to delve into that. Well, I, it's just what I call the trifecta of misogyny. I, I sometimes call it the trifecta of patriarchy now, which is, uh, I want everyone to imagine a dictator, well, you don't need to imagine, there is, you have Boris Johnson, you don't need to imagine. There's a dictator in, you know, num number 10 or the presidential palace or whatever it is, but there's also a dictator on the street corner and that dictator is basically the ways that men are allowed all the space in what we call public space. And you know that awful murder a few days ago in Ilford, Zarina Alam, I think her name was, yes? Um, she was beaten to death, you know, and... and the, the, Walking home, 10 minutes from her house. The, the horror of it, you know, and regardless of what she was doing, no one should be beaten to death. Regardless of what time it was, what she was wearing, what, where, where she was walking, you know, this whole whatever victim, good victim, bad victim, I don't care who she was and where she was, she was beaten to death by a man, you know? So that is the dictator on the street corner. And then there's a dictator at home, because I also want to challenge the idea that you know, because some people were saying, oh my God, it was 2 a.m., what were you doing at, at, you know, outside at 2 a.m.? Home is the most dangerous place for women. So it doesn't matter where the fuck we are, you know? And that's where the dictator at home is. So that, that's where the state, the street, and the home come in. Because I want people to understand that men, the, the state recruits men um, as accomplices, that, that men are accomplices, and often women too. But they agree to be accomplices in this state-run patriarchy. Um, I often forget that it hurts them too. Because when I talked about the patriarchy as an octopus, not all men benefit from that octopus, and some women benefit from that octopus. So I often say when people ask me about what is the goal of my feminism, the goal of my feminism is much bigger than equality. Because for the longest time we say that the goal of feminism is equality. And of course I want everyone to have equal access, equal rights, equal blah, blah, blah. But my feminism aims for something much more ambitious than equality. My feminism goal has the goal of liberation. I want to be free. And the reason that I say that is 
I'm not interested in equality with a man who is not free. Why would I want to be equal to a man who is not free? Working class men are not free, black men are not free, disabled men are not free, etc., etc. So why would I want to be equal to, to someone who is not free? And on the, the opposite, the flip side of that, is that there are women, the white women, for example, in the US, who helped to destroy Roe v. Wade, who are themselves, who agree to be accomplices to patriarchy, what I call foot soldiers of the patriarchy. So we have to see patriarchy as much bigger than just the state. It's the state, it's the street, and it's the home, and they work in unison to oppress those of us who don't have the privilege to be protected from that octopus that I call patriarchy. Before we go to the quick fire round, I want to ask you about your views on toxic masculinity, probably the most retweeted word in social media, uh, and yet uh, highly contested, uh, both by some feminists, but also a lot of men who disagree with the idea of it. What are your thoughts about the term? Is it helpful? What does it refer to in your mind? Well, I think it's important that we recognize we're not saying masculinity, you know? I mean, we all have mixes of masculinity and femininity in us. Uh, for me, what, what it represents is kind of like the, 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 the ultimate and awfulness of patriarchy and the ways that it enables and protects uh, a, a certain form of masculinity, which is that toxic kind, uh, when it comes to things like violence against us and, and, and it comes to all those tentacles of the octopus. And I, I want to give people three examples in three very different countries of manifestations of toxic masculinity that have happened within the past week alone. So a man in Egypt murdered a woman who said no. He, he kept proposing to her and she said no. Outside of her university, he literally slaughtered her. And there, 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 are, there are films of this horrendous crime that have been making the rounds in social media in Egypt. Uh, in a copycat crime, a man in Jordan also murdered a woman at university, and he said to her, if you don't agree to go out with me, I'm going to do to you what the man in Egypt did to the woman. And he murdered her at university in Jordan. And just two days ago in Canada, in the Canadian capital, Ottawa, a 21-year-old man was arrested for invading the home of a mother and her two daughters because he, he was obsessed with one of the daughters who also was not interested in him, and he murdered the mother and one of the daughters. So those are three very different countries, Egypt, Jordan, and Canada, three very different men who could not take no. This is toxic masculinity. This is what it means when patriarchy protects and enables a form of masculinity that feels, that is socialized into thinking that it deserves and it owns our attention, our affections, and our bodies. And when we say no, this is, this is what happens to us. We're murdered. So that, that's, what, that's what I mean by toxic masculinity. And, and men have to see that. And men have to own that. And men have to understand that it, it's actually much more on them than it is on me. Because, you know, men, men, many men, <laughs> much to their discredit, will not listen to me. They will listen to other men, you know, because they hear a feminist talking and they think that when I talk about patriarchy, I mean them. And they think that when I talk about feminism, I mean the destruction of men. I don't want to destroy men. I want to destroy patriarchy. And as I said, some women benefit from it, and many men do not benefit from it. So this is on men now. Men have to talk to their brothers, their sons, their, their friends, and tell them that this is wrong. They have to interrupt toxic masculinity and, and tell men, it, if she says no, you have to accept that. And I don't know when that's going to happen and how long that it's going to take, but until that day, I will keep asking how many rapists must we kill, and I will keep using legitimate violence to defend myself against anyone who thinks that they are entitled to me or my body. Thank you very much. Um, we now have uh, the quick fire round of, of the podcast, uh, where basically I ask you quick questions 
expecting quick answers in response. And then I'll do what we don't usually do, which is open up to you, the audience, for a few questions as well. Um, quick fire at question one. What is your definition of whiteness? Power and entitlement. What is the root of racism? <laughs> um, <laughs> what is the root of racism? That, that's heavy. Um, and that's a, that, that needs more than a quick-fire um, question. <laughs> um, you know, power and entitlement, again, I really think it is. What is the opposite of white feminism? Intersectional feminism. What is the most powerful way to resist whiteness? The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Available in all good bookshops. <laughs> is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? I would like to get rid of racism, obviously, but we're really, really far away from it. And so um, I, I completely reject terms like post-racial or post-racist or post-feminist because we're very, very far away from anything post-anything. And that, I realize, is not a quick answer to your question. That's quick enough. Um, uh, is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Um, as a way of having something that we can oppose. So to create what we must oppose. Thank you very much. Um, and so for the last few minutes, I'll take some questions from the audience. Uh, if you raise your hand, uh, there is a microphone that is coming round to you. Um, so if we start with this lady uh, here, then the gentleman in front, and then we can come to the front rows here. Oh, um, hello, it's been so good. Um, thank you so much um, for everything and all of you education that I couldn't even dream of thinking about. But my question is about the internalized toxic masculinity that women have. Um, the, the internalized patriarchy that you were saying. I don't know if I heard you right, but you were saying maybe about the, the people that were rallying the most for this anti-abortion are actually women, white women. You know, because perhaps it makes them look better or they, you know, the patriarchy and they get to benefit from that. But yeah, internalized misogyny within females. Uh, yes. Thank okay. you. Thank you for your question. Can we take two at a time? Are you yeah, happy with that? Absolutely. Can we take the gentleman just in front of you and then, and then we'll uh, come and take these two after that. Thanks. Oh, thank you very much. I just want to... It's a bit of a bizarre question because it's something that I observed um, after the Roe, actually after the initial leak of the Roe v. Wade, um, um, the Roe v. Wade um, pending judgment at the time. And I'm going to tread very, very carefully because I'm aware of the optics that of me as a man who actually happens to be pro-choice. But it's something I observed as a black reparationist and, um, and a writer is that what I saw within some circles, so the black community, reparation circles, for example, um, particularly in reparation, these are the very, very most pro-black of pro-black people, was that a lot of them, a lot of people didn't have as big a problem, both men and women, this is, with the decision as I thought they would. And some of the stuff, so I am 1,000% pro-choice, 1,000% um, feminist, as I, as to the best of my abilities a man could be. But one of the things that was very interesting that jumped out is when people were starting to actually cite statistics that I was not even aware of. So when people often say things like um, black women are the most affected by abortion, it's 1,000% correct. 
I didn't know how big an issue it was. So 40% of all abortions were performed on black women, um, were formed of black women, which make up for about, I believe, um, less than 7% of the entire population. In New York, which is the biggest state in America, for example, more black babies were aborted between 2012 and 2016 than were born, as I understand it. Um, the population of black people in America right now stands at about 40 million people. Since 1973 to date, as I understand it, 20 million people have been aborted. 20 million uh, babies or would be, would be children also have been aborted. And it boils down to the question of the economics of abortion to me, um, which is one of, when I say I'm pro-choice, the question I often have to myself, or so the question that was posed to me was, how much of a choice do you actually have in this situation when, when the choice, when you don't really have the economic power to actually make a choice? So for example, so their point was, look, for them, Reparations has to be, I'll really wrap up, reparations has to be the key issue or so to make sure the economic, to make sure to close the wealth gap and make sure there was, um, there was no, the, the economic disparity was gone as opposed to actually looking at other aspects in society. That was the key driving issue. But it was again, the question was, how much choice do you really have when, the, when you don't really have the economic decision to make a choice? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay, should I we'll answer take those, those two? two and then we'll yes. take the next few, yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll begin with internalized misogyny. Yeah, absolutely, that is an issue. That's, uh, so I, I often like to say that um, patriarchy throws some women crumbs in return for a limited amount of power. And I want everyone to reject those crumbs. And I, I don't want crumbs, I want the whole cake. And I don't even want patriarchy's cake. I want to make my own fucking cake, you know? So, so that's what it is. And so with the white women who helped to destroy Roe v. Wade, who I said made, made up the bulk, of the anti-abortion movement. These are white women who we often say have proximity to power. You know, they bask in the power of their white men, husbands, brothers, sons, all of that. And they think that in, in doing basically the, the bidding of this white supremacist patriarchy, they're going to be protected by, and no one, nothing protects you from patriarchy. So th this is my like very quick answer. And this, these are the women I call foot soldiers of the patriarchy. And in battles, foot soldiers are often the ones who are killed the quickest, you know, because they're right there at the front line. They're not the generals, you know, doing the, the strategizing and rarely the ones killed, you know? So I hope that answered your question. Great. So um, when it comes to, you know, so my really quick answer to what you are asking me is reproductive justice. That's exactly the point that reproductive justice makes. Because as I said, there's a difference between reproductive justice and reproductive rights. Reproductive justice wants a world in which that economic aspect that you mentioned is addressed in which someone who wants to have a baby has a baby, but has everything there at their disposal to bring up that baby in a dignified way, you know, where they, they create families of their own choosing and whatever shape and form that family has. And anyone who doesn't want to have a baby also does not have to have a baby. So that means access to contraception, but it also means access to health healthcare, access to education, access to food, access to housing. So I think that answers all that you're, and, and the, the one thing that I would caution is that white supremacists in the United States who are anti-abortion will often use those numbers to say, oh God, don't, don't you see that we are actually pro-black? These are racist fucks who will quote these numbers and pretend that they're actually supporting black communities by saying, by using those very numbers that you told me. They will not, however, then say we need reproductive justice what they will say is, we want to ban abortion because they're interested in having more white babies. They don't, they don't give a flying fuck 
about brown babies or black babies. They only care about fetuses, because they're not babies. They only care about fetuses until they're viable and they're born, and then they don't care about those babies anymore, because if they did, they would be health insurance and they would be schooling and they would be housing and they would be reproductive justice. Do you know what I mean? So that's exactly how. And yes, absolutely reparations. And on, along the path towards reparations is reproductive justice. I mean, black maternal health in the United States is abysmal. The number of black women who die simply by being at the hospital because of the systemic racism in the United States. So the entire system is wrong. The entire system is anti-black and systemic in its racism. And reproductive justice is the solution. I hope I've answered your question. Thank and, you. And, and here in the UK, um, until very recently, black women were five times, I believe, more likely to die in childbirth. I think it's now four, but still four times more likely to die in childbirth. Um, two more questions. Thank you so much for those amazing questions. Um, do we still have a microphone going around? Oh, yes, here. And then to this lady over here. Hi. Um, so two, two short family stories. Uh, my great uncle lived in America in the 1930s, and in the 1950s, he was kicked out of America because they declared he wasn't white, and the only people entitled to live in America were white Europeans. And he was actually quite famous before he was kicked out, so that explains exactly how they view people. Secondly, the same thing happened to my great-grandfather who lived in Australia, and when they declared the white Australia policy, they kicked him out of the country as well. So what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying about all this is that I think there's been a demographic war, really, against non-white people, and it's been ongoing for 300 years. Um, you know, you've got writers like Sven Lindquist over in Sweden writing about, you know, how about 300 years ago, people sitting in Germany were imagining science fiction stories where they were exterminating Chinese. Now, why would that even occur to somebody, right? And then you have Washington sort of, you know, carrying out his revolution. He didn't carry out his revolution because he wanted freedom for people. He wanted more land that he wanted to steal from Native Americans. The British weren't allowing him to do that. Benjamin Franklin wanted to exterminate all the Native Americans. That was another founding father. And so what, what I'm saying is that if you look at what's happening right now, you've had 500,000 people, uh, 500,000 children starved to death in Iraq. And uh, Madeleine Albright said that was a price, price worth paying. You know, you've had um, basically economic warfare against the whole of the Middle East, Afghanistan, South Asia, where people have been killed. And that's been explained in terms of feminism. That, oh, yes, that we're trying to give women more rights down there. Now, you're doing that by killing their kids. That isn't about feminism. That's about trying to reduce the population of non-white people. And that's been ongoing for 300 years. Is Thank there you. a question? My, my question is, do you agree that, you know, basically this is about demographics more than anything else? And it's about maintaining white supremacy by reducing the population of non-white people? We'll get another question and I'll answer your question. Um, so my name is Ana Maria Campuzano and I was born in Dominican Republic, lived in the States for 18 years. I just want to introduce that. Coming from a place where I've, I've seen um, in, in, you know, in Dominican Republic there's a lot of women violence, um, I decided to become this person that sort of engaged in feminism um, in a diplomatic way. But a lot of times we get upset and I don't know how to differentiate between this feminist and dangerous woman that you're supposed to be that usually calls you aggressive. And every single time that you're in a public space and you're trying to express your ideas or, or how you've been marginalized by the community in prior times, uh, people stop listening because you become this aggressive person rather than this diplomatic person. So they, they, they often confuse this, uh, you know, your intelligence with, you know what, let's not listen to you anymore because you've gotten aggressive. And, and I think that that's really, really dangerous when it comes to becoming a feminist and, you know, dangerous woman. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I think, I think we addressed the white supremacy issue quite early on when Miriam asked me, um, don't you think that at the heart of the reversal of Roe v. Wade is white demographics 
and replacement theory. So I think we, we, we touched upon it. I mean, you made very legitimate points. This absolutely is about white supremacy. I've, you know, Miriam has quoted me as saying that the US media's um, uh, fault or the US media's faili failing right now is its inability to say that these are white supremacist Christian zealots who are driven by white supremacist Christian zealotry, you know? So I think I've, I've addressed what you're saying, but um, your question, I, I think, has already been addressed. But I want us to remember that whether it's the UK or Australia or the US and the colonial histories of so many of these countries, feminism, yes, has been misused. In, and I, I said when, when I spoke at the Egypt panel a few days, or it was last Saturday, at the same time as the high commission, so we had the high commissioner in Egypt called Lord, Lord Cromer. While he was overseeing Egypt as kind of like, you know, the colonial master of Egypt and encouraging Egyptian women, um, brown women basically, to be educated and to be free of brown men and the oppression of brown men, that same Lord Cromer was against the suffragists, the suffragettes in the UK. He was against women getting the right to vote. He belonged to a political party that was against the right to vote for women and to run for political office. So yes, absolutely, feminism has often been used as a way to justify wars over there and to ignore that the very things that they're supposedly liberating women over there from are actually happening right over here as well. So it's a mix of right, white supremacy and white feminism and all of those things, absolutely. So I think we've answered all your questions, but if there's more that I haven't answered, I'd be happy to answer them after the event. But thank you for all the, 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 the important points that you made. And um, when it comes to, um, so I, I know what you're saying, you know, especially, you know, my black feminist friends will often be accused of, you know, the kind of like the loud, angry, aggressive black woman. And, and it's a reminder of kind of like the privilege of anger and who has the, the freedom to be angry. You know, anger is one of the, the seven necessary sins in my book. And I recognize that we don't all have, we don't, we're not standing on level playing fields when it comes to, to, be, to anger and the ways and profanity and so many of those things because of the harm of that octopus. Because when I tell people, I want you to imagine who is most harmed by those tentacles, I recognize that my privilege protects me from many of those tentacles. So I recognize that I will be able to get away with things that many others who are harmed by more tentacles won't be able to get away with. And so I say things in my book, for example, that white women who were finally angry when Donald Trump was, or, uh, when, the, when the tape came out of him saying, you can grab them by the pussy, they let you grab them by the pussy when you're famous. And I was like, why, why weren't you this angry when he was saying Mexicans are rapists and murderers? So what does it take to get you angry? Just misogyny? And like I kept saying, we don't have, that we can't afford to be angry just at misogyny. But the, the flip side of that also is to recognize what I say when it, when it comes to profanity and civility, that in, in return or in response to patriarchal violence, which includes, in, in my opinion, racial violence, because the octopus is patriarchy at the top and white supremacy and all the other things, we are supposed to basically contain ourselves and control ourselves and be polite and be respectful and be dignified and be feminine and be, 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 all of this as we're being killed, as we're being harmed, as we're being raped, as we're being demeaned, as we're being humiliated. And I'm like, fuck all of that shit. I don't recognize your power or your ability or any of those things. And I refuse to be civil or respectful or polite, you know? Having recognized that I have more privilege perhaps than others to be all of those things, but nobody should, should expect civili civility and politeness in response to racism, misogyny, and all those other forms of oppression. Fuck that shit. Oh.
on that note, <laughs> Monel Tahawi, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners, to the live audience here today with us for tuning into this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.